Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, life in limbo and immigration detention in Australia and the UK. We talked to two experts about what it's like waiting months, sometimes years, for a decision about your freedom. It's a really difficult form of limbo, both practically, physically and legally. They're basically being held on what they perceive as a prison when actually they haven't committed a criminal offence. And later in the show, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushes millions of refugees to flee the country, we hear about Russia's history of using refugees from Ukraine as geopolitical tools. This campaign around Ukrainian refugees amplified the Kremlin view on Ukrainians as the same nation. I'm Gemma Ware in London, and my regular co-host Dan Reno is on vacation, so I'm joined this week by Justin Bergman. Hi, I'm Justin, and I'm on the politics team based in Melbourne, Australia. And you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. I'm outside the Park Hotel in Melbourne, uh, which has been used as an immigration detention facility for uh, the past couple of years. The hotel is just next door to the Conversation offices on Swanston Street. The front door has been blockaded and the windows on street level have been blacked out. And there's graffiti scrawled all over the outside of the hotel. Some of it has been faded or painted over. Uh, One that I'm looking at right now says torturer's entrance with an arrow pointed toward the underground car park, which I'm assuming is where uh, people are taken in and out when they when they are brought into detention here. Across the street on the sidewalk, there are more messages written in chalk. One says, this is a prison. And there is a message saying, close this prison, free our friends. The Park Hotel in Melbourne made headlines in January this year when tennis star Novak Djokovic was temporarily detained there. Near 10 hours stalemate at the border overnight. The world number one was moved to a detention hotel where he'll be holed up until his appeal next week. Djokovic, who was scheduled to play the Australian Open, was unvaccinated and had his visa revoked by the Australian government. The incident drew attention to the plight of more than 30 refugees held at the Park Hotel, which has been used as a makeshift immigration detention facility since 2019. Many of the people held there had been transferred from the notorious offshore processing sites on Nauru, an island nation in the Pacific, and on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. As of December, 228 people remain on the two islands. And even for the hundreds transferred to immigration centers on the mainland of Australia, such as the Park Hotel, the conditions are dire. Many are unable to leave the centers for indefinite periods of time. Now, Australia may have one of the world's most egregious immigration detention systems, but it's definitely not alone in detaining people for indefinite amounts of time. Here in the UK, thousands of people are detained each year by the UK Home Office in removal centres. The life of limbo inside these centres is deeply traumatic. And so for this episode, we wanted to find out what impact the wait is having on people. To do that, we'll be hearing from two experts from Australia and the UK. This story has been made with the support of the UK-Australia Season Patrons Board, the British Council and the Australian Government, as part of the UK-Australia Season. The Season's programme reflects on the two countries' shared history, explores their current relationship and imagines their future together. First, we'll hear a brief message from Ismail Hussein. 
Ismail, who is 29 years old and originally from Somalia, was evacuated from Manus Island in October 2019 and brought to the Park Hotel. Here, he tells us about what it's like to be living in limbo inside the detention facility. Hello, my name is Ismail Hussein. I'm one of the refugees locked up at Park Prison for over two years now. After being medevaced from Papua New Guinea, which I was held over seven years and another two years here. So I've been in Australia detention for nine years and I've been brought here for medical reasons and got no treatment and still locked up here. We've been treated badly, even worse than criminals. We've been held a place that have no sunlight at all, no fresh air, and we have to spend at least 23 hours a day in a single room, which have no windows. And there's no light in the tunnel. We don't know how long more we will be kept and how long more it will take. And that's the worst torture that someone can get. We lost our minds here. We've been sick both physically and, and mentally. The food that we are provided is mold food. We have maggots. Sometimes it's not even edible and very poor treatment, worse than criminals. I reached out to Madeline Gleason, a senior research fellow at the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. So if we could start by you briefly telling us the story of how we've gotten to this point in Australia. When did people begin arriving by boat and from where did they come? The first asylum seekers to try and reach protection and safety in Australia by boat came in the 1970s as a result of the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis. And that was really a particular time in history. There were significant numbers at that time of people coming by boat, but there were also people that Australia was resettling as refugees out of the region from Vietnam and elsewhere. But since then, there have been successive waves of other asylum seekers coming by boat from really a range of places all around the world, from Middle Eastern countries where there has uh, been conflict and other sorts of turmoil, issues driving persecution, So we have seen large numbers at different times from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, more recently from Syria, as well as from other parts of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. So when the migrants and asylum seekers began arriving, they were initially sent offshore to Nauru and PNG. Is that right, Madeline? That's right. So the people who are locked up in hotels in Australia today actually first arrived here about eight or nine years ago. Most of them would have arrived in the second half of 2013 or early 2014. Unfortunately for them, at that time, Australia was trying to look tough on immigration by sending asylum seekers who arrived by boat offshore to the Pacific Island nations of Nauru and Papua New Guinea. From now on, Any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia as refugees. Asylum seekers taken to Christmas Island will be sent to Manus and elsewhere in Papua New Guinea for assessment of their refugee status. By late 2014, Australia had pivoted away from this policy and stopped sending people offshore. But the group who were already there at that time got stuck, detained in harsh conditions for years while processing was dragged out. Now, many went on to be recognised as refugees, but Australia insisted that they would not be permitted to return here on a permanent basis. So they remained stuck in limbo for years on end. And while they waited, they got sicker until almost everyone offshore needed to be medically evacuated back to Australia for medical treatment, physical or psychological. 
Instead of medical treatment, though, they were locked up, many in hotels, and a number of them have now been there for many years. And tell us what the situation's like today. How many people are we talking about living in these detention hotels in Australia? We have about 70 people who were flown back from offshore for medical reasons, and they're held in a mixture of places, a mixture of formal immigration detention centres and detention hotels, which are also called alternative places of detention or APODs. So there's 70 people across both sorts of detention facilities and in the Park Hotel in particular, the detention hotel that's been in the news recently, about 30 people. Uh, This has been after eight, nine years, and they're still in detention. So what's the reason at this point? The reason for detaining this particular group has never been clear. And the reason for detaining them in hotels is uh, particularly unclear and extraordinary, given that uh, hotels are not fit for purpose for detaining people for long periods of time. That's something we saw really clearly during the COVID-19 pandemic and the hotel quarantine phase, how difficult it was for people to be held uh, in closed confines in hotels. That would only have been for two weeks at a time. What we have seen here is many years' worth of being held in detention in hotels, often crammed in together with many other people, uh, without any facilities appropriate for that sort of detention, without excursions, etc., As for the reason why this group has been detained rather than released onto bridging visas, that's been a really pertinent question and it's not one on which the government has been able to give us a clear answer. Uh, Recently, the Australian Border Force confirmed that none of the people who are detained at the moment have security concerns raised about them by Australia's security agencies. There's been some vague insinuation that there might be character concerns, uh, but The suggestion that someone might have a character concern without putting that evidence to them or or giving them a chance to rebut it is not really a basis for indefinite detention. And just to clarify, were all of the migrants and asylum seekers in this group formally declared asylum seekers? Have they had their cases processed yet? The majority of the people being held in the Park Hotel specifically, the vast majority of them have been found to be refugees. So they have been through the full formal legal process. It has been determined that they cannot go back to their countries of origin for fear of being killed or tortured or persecuted. Uh, So we know who they are. Uh, We know that they are at risk. We know that they need a solution. Uh, What we don't know is why they are still locked up. And then there is a smaller number of people who their claims may still be working through the process but not yet have reached that final stage. And I think we can say they're all men. Is that is that right? Men who came here when they were largely in their teenage years or very young? At the moment, the people being held in the Park Hotel are men. But it's important to remember that when this cohort of people first started to be brought back from offshore, it did include women and families people were subject to detention on return uh, in situations where they really shouldn't have been. Uh, But over the years, and certainly at least recently with mounting pressure, there has been a a good number of people released from those detention hotels. So now what we see remaining is a smaller number of men in that park hotel, which is really the focus of the media attention at the moment. And tell us what life in limbo looks like for these migrants. I don't think any of us can possibly imagine what that type of limbo must feel like. Because if we think through the journey that these people have been through, they have faced uh, torture, trauma, persecution, uh, perhaps near death in their home countries. They might have had loved ones very close to them be killed. 
They've had to leave behind their homes and their families, fled in difficult conditions. When they finally reached Australia, they were met with detention and then deportation to another country, uh, where many of them lived in incredibly difficult circumstances for many years, again still in detention. And then when they got so ill that they needed to be returned here for medical treatment, again, more detention. Uh, And all the while, without ever getting clarity on where they might be able to uh, call home, where their journey might be able to come to an end and they might be able to start to recover uh, from this whole experience. And for those who have been able to get temporary visas, do they all have the same rights in the community? The Australian migration system is one of the most convoluted, complex areas of Australian administrative law and practice. And what has happened as a result of many years of successive policy changes is that we have multiple categories of people here on temporary visas and with temporary status. Now, the one thing they have in common is that permanent temporariness, that limbo of not ever being able to find that durable solution and settle down and and make the permanent life. But apart from that which they have in common, there are many differences depending on what visa category people have that can change whether or not they have the right to work, uh, what social benefits they might be entitled to, uh, what other settlement services they might be entitled to, even where they're expected to live, whether they are on a visa that uh, expects them to live in a a regional or remote area of Australia as opposed to living uh, in an urban centre. So they have very little rights in Australia. Uh, They basically have no rights other than those that the minister might choose to grant them. They have no right to liberty unless the minister says so. They have no right to challenge the fact or length of their detention in a court. They really have very limited access to the courts at all. And they certainly have no right to a visa, no right to remain in Australia, uh, and for most of them, no right to go anywhere else either. So it's, it's a really difficult form of limbo, both practically, physically and legally. Given these difficulties, what what does the future hold? What are the prospects that they could be offered resettlement options, perhaps in other countries? Well, the first step should be release from detention. And certainly any individual uh, for whom there is not an active security risk or concern should be released immediately onto a bridging visa. Like for everyone else in this cohort who was offshore and was brought back to Australia, the question becomes, what next? Where can they go to to settle, uh, to, to start rebuilding their lives and to find what we call a durable solution to their refugee condition? Uh, now, some of the people in this cohort may still be able to go to the United States under the terms of an exceptional deal, which was struck with the Obama administration. But that has taken many, many years to unfold. We are still waiting for some people to, to finalise the process to go there. Small numbers of other people might be able to go to Canada or elsewhere. But the biggest hope for many is an offer that New Zealand has extended to take up to 150 people or so. That New Zealand offer was first made in February 2013. So a long time ago, about the same time that some of these people might have been arriving in Australia to begin with. But successive coalition governments have refused this offer because of what they say is a concern. The Australian back door might be exploited by these people. And what they mean by that is that Australia and New Zealand have special 
uh, mutual reciprocal visa arrangements, which allow citizens of each country to go to the other and enjoy certain benefits. The government claims that it cannot take up the New Zealand offer for fear that refugees resettled in New Zealand might hypothetically, at one day far away in the future, become New Zealand citizens and at that point use this visa category to come to Australia. And because of this hypothetical far-off fear, they continue to hold these people in limbo rather than finalising agreement with New Zealand to send people there you know, immediately. So those negotiations have been uh, ongoing. Uh, from what we can tell, they have been lengthy, they have been deep. Uh, and it's a matter now of whether the two governments can reach agreement on that because, from what I understand, New Zealand understandably has concerns about Australia trying to, in the future, close certain of its future citizens out of Australia. And we do have a federal election coming up in a few months. Uh, with that, I wonder if immigration detention, the asylum seeker issue, is going to become an election issue. And if so, whether we'll see any shifting um, political will or, uh, again, momentum in, in favor of finally finding a solution to this problem? I think there are many who hope that refugees will not become an election issue because the only place that leads to is a race to the bottom. And we've seen that in federal elections before, that when you have two parties trying to outcompete each other to appear uh, as tough as possible on people who have come here seeking protection, uh, really everyone is a loser, but particularly those who are in our country in the asylum system. So it's hoped that it doesn't become an election issue because really for the men in these hotel detention situations. This does not need to be a political issue. It's a, an administrative issue at this stage. It is a matter of the minister exercising the power that he or she has uh, to convert their current status into that of a bridging visa and release them into the community. The bigger question is what to do moving forward more broadly with Australia's asylum policy. And that is certainly a difficult question but it's not one that is going to be resolved through campaign slogans in an election year. It's something that's going to be resolved through uh, careful consideration, uh, weighing up of the evidence and careful policy formation in a slow and careful manner rather than in an election year. Thank you, Madeline, for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. So, Justin, from your conversation there with Madeline, it sounds like the face of the people held inside these detention facilities won't change at all after Australia's upcoming elections. Yes, that's true. Uh, both Australia's Labour Party and the coalition parties have taken fierce positions on these refugees who arrived by boat. So it's difficult to imagine this will be any different in the coming election. OK, so while Australia's immigration policy is moving from offshore to onshore processing, some countries are actually going in the opposite direction. Last year in 2021, Denmark passed legislation allowing the transfer of asylum seekers to offshore locations. And here in the UK, the Conservative government in Westminster has been considering a similar policy as well. Meanwhile, people continue to be detained in immigration centres across the UK. So who are they and how is the waiting affecting them? To find out, I called up Lorena Kalizi, Associate Professor in Social and Trauma Psychology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. 
Can you tell us how many people are currently living in immigration detention in the UK? So if we're looking at, for example, the last available data, it's for March 2020 to March 2021. And during that one year, there was 12,967 people. Um, so at some point, there were close to 10 or even 11 immigration rule centers. And at the moment, there are seven. And there are also two short um, holding facilities, so kind of nine places where most of the detainees are being held. What are some of the reasons that people are being put into immigration detention? Why might they be detained or put into a removal centre? I mean, they're mainly meant to be kind of for administrative purposes. So while people are being identified or while they're being held to be uh, deported or removed from the UK. Quite a few of them have applied for asylum and are waiting for their asylum cases to to be kind of decided or they've had their asylum case rejected or they have withdrawn their asylum case. And then there are other people who have had uh, no documentation at the present. So either they might have had a visa in the past and that visa has expired or they've violated the terms of the visa so they have no documentation. There are other people who have come into the country without a particular right to come in, so no visa or no other, uh, no other means. And there are also people who have uh, served the prison sentence and they're waiting to be removed from the country. And what do we know about who these people are and how they got to the UK? Um, the countries tend to change over time, but at the moment, most people are coming from Iran, Albania, Syria and Sudan. They've come in every possible route you can think of. So they might have had a visa or they might have been at the back of a lorry, might have been in a boat coming in. They might have found other ways that are really very, very dangerous ways to come in the country. So whatever their reasons, they've taken very big risks and, and sometimes big financial expenses as well to come to the UK. Um, others would have been living in the UK for a long time, especially if we're thinking of um, people who have served prison sentences, but not only. They would have been in the, in the UK for even decades and they are being removed, sometimes to countries that they don't really know anybody, if they've left as children, for example. They sometimes don't even know the language. They have no place to return to. So it's it's a lot of different reasons, lots of different routes. Well, somebody who's in immigration detention, will they have typically been waiting outside of detention for a decision from the Home Office for, for quite a while? Yes. So at the moment, between 50% and about 68% are asylum detainees. So some of them would have had to, to wait for a long time. But however, there are also cases where people are detained upon arrival. Um, while the decision is being made, are they going to be dispersed? A lot of people in there don't have information, don't know what's going on with their lives. So they might have a very strong case for asylum, but they don't know that they have that case or they don't have the documentation to prove it. And when you go into these places, tell us what they're like inside. So there's no direct routes. Uh, they are quite located quite in isolated areas, almost like in the middle of nowhere. Um, then they look like prisons. You have to bring documentation to go in. You need to be searched to go in. They've got barbed wires outside. And as soon as you walk in, um, they also smell and they feel like prisons. They don't feel like very safe places. And even I could feel that sense of distress, everybody kind of walking around looking very upset. Um, one detainee explained that the beginning you kind of come in and you look like, like a human being, you're dressed with normal clothes. And then after a few days, you start wearing slippers and you kind of your shoulders go down as well. And you just really uh, lose that energy because there are such distressing places. Uh, very, very often they have kind of very strict regimes. So you have to be in your room for a certain amount of time. You can socialize in, in certain areas and at certain times and food is provided at certain times as well. So it's very regimented, very much like a prison. 
And I was thinking, they can't sleep. So if people are removed in the night, uh, the doors are locked, but you can still hear them being removed forcibly, for example, and screaming or, or shouting in fear. So it's, it's very difficult to, to escape what other people are feeling, even if you're isolating in your room. How long do people typically stay in detention if they're put in there? Yeah, sadly, there is no limit. Um, there are a few exceptions to so kind of pregnant women and families, but there is no statutory limit to how long people will stay in detention. The average, you're looking at kind of 28 days or more, but there are a few cases who have been there even for years. So it's, it's very unpredictable how long um, the asylum case will take. Mm-hmm. What are the outcomes? What could happen to them either way? So there obviously could be the negative outcomes where they are being uh, given a flight to, to, and a date to be removed from the country. Um, they sometimes can choose to go voluntary as well, but that would mean that you give up the opportunity to come back. So if somebody has strong connections to the UK, sometimes receive the, the good news that they are being released or there's been a positive change in their case. Um, they can be temporarily released. So there are a lot of people who actually go in and out of detention. So they're released at one point, they're picked up again, and they're released again. So they're kind of remember cases where have been five or six times detained over many years. But um, over half of them will be released rather than deported. And let's move on to your research now, because you've conducted quite a few interviews with people inside these detention centres. Tell us about these interviews. Um, so for this purpose, I interviewed 45 detainees and 21 staff. I went to two detention centres. The first one was Jarlswood, which is um, near Bedford. And the second one is Merton Hall, which is near Lincoln. One of the things that stood out was how many people were um, either self-harming or thinking, having suicidal thoughts, and how few of those actually were receiving support for that. Somebody kind of feeling like a tennis ball. Uh, they felt like the, the home office is because they have no control of what's happening with their lives. They felt like they're being thrown from one side to the other. Um, they talk about distress and they talk about kind of having no hope and having nothing to look forward to. They talk about loss. So people who have been in the country for, for some time, they would have families, they would have social connections. They talk about the fear of losing um, the loved ones. And you mentioned there some of the kind of impact that has on people but tell us more about what that life in limbo and that waiting is like on a day-to-day basis what do people do time is very very difficult to pass Um, there is that kind of sense of uncertainty and loss of control over over one's life you've got no control of how long you're going to be there people talk about being locked up in cages basically and having absolutely no control what they're doing when they eat what they eat um, where they go and and how they go and who they are with Uh, so very often they're put in rooms with other people either one person or, or three or four other people strangers that you've never met before sometimes these strangers don't speak your language So you're suddenly sharing a room with people you don't know that are actually experiencing a lot of distress. Um, You live in fear. You are in fear all the time of what's going to happen with your outcome. So there are kind of uh, even behaviors that because there's so much fear, people had behaviors to try and avoid finding out outcomes. So they actively don't go and ask for updates? It's a bit of both. One of the most terrifying moments for most people in detention is seeing the Home Office um, receiving an outcome. What are some of the strategies that people that you interviewed say that they use to cope with this situation and this this weight that they're forced to endure? 
I mean, it's it's a strong time of uncertainty and distress, and unsurprisingly, many people turn towards others. So they will turn towards other detainees, and kind of they talk about being like a team, and we laugh and we cry together. We feel like a family. Uh, but this can't happen all the time because it's such a distressing place. It can be too much to bear witness of other people's pain. So sometimes they'll go, I don't want to hang around the wing. It's too too negative vibes, kind of very negative, and I've got plenty of my own problems. So it becomes very difficult. Um, they will turn towards their families as well when they have got them, uh, but they're also very careful with that because they know that their own pain is then passed on to the loved ones. So I remember talking to one detainee, he said, uh, when my family asks, I say I'm all right when I'm not. And I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, how can I tell them that I'm not all right? Uh, when I'm, then they're going to suffer the same as me. So I have to suffer on my own because I do not want my loved ones to suffer like me. And then uh, many turn towards religion. So uh, one thing that the removal centers are, I think, are, are working well is providing the opportunity to attend uh, different religious events, but also uh, specific places where uh, religion behavior can take place. Uh, some choose activities. So many of the removal centers will have opportunities for activities like sport and the gym. So some find that form of distraction very helpful. Others are very actively looking for information. So some people who have the skills and the ability will teach themselves to where to find, to understand the law, to understand their case and, and where to seek for information. Um, a few people will work, so some of the removal centers would have opportunities for people to work. Some of them will work in the, in the center, for example, in the cleaning, and this is again a form of distraction. But sometimes this also reflects kind of the level of desperation and financial desperation that some of the Denise are in, that even that one or two pounds they can earn from a day's work is, is good enough because they have nothing. Are the centres also trying to provide people with psychological help? There might be a welfare office and a psychologist, but when you consider the number of people and the level of distress, it's very rare that these are adequate for the needs of, of everyone. And even if everything was in place, it's very, very hard to predict. So people don't know how long they're going to be there. So kind of making a plan to support somebody, it's very difficult. Even staff find this very difficult. For example, one staff said, kind of, I know that the mental side is very difficult, but you've got no idea what's going to happen to them. Uh, and then some of them have kind of told you the most terrible stories and you know that actually you can't make any difference to their life because they don't, you don't know if they're going to be there tomorrow. Another very, very big part of it, which we've looked in our research, is there are huge issues of trust, um, in part because it feeds into how little many Denise understand about their status. So they think that talking to health staff uh, might actually impact their case negatively. So one, one Denise said, I think, oh, this person is probably from immigration, so I'm not going to tell them anything. There is also that believe that actually whatever help is offered doesn't really address their needs. So they kind of reject the premise that there is help because that help is not addressing the issue which is being being in there. So providing any support, it's it's only going to deal with a perhaps a one or two hour of distress, but it can't make any difference to actually what is causing them uh, the distress. Yeah. Is there anything that can be done by the government or by the centers themselves to alleviate some of of this trauma, this um, psychological harm that's happening to people who are living in this immigration limbo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if people feel that they have the right support, so access to legal um, advice, 
the understanding also would help with that sense that um, the process itself being fair, being more transparent, uh, making sure that people have uh, equal access and adequate access as well. So somebody who doesn't speak English will have different needs to somebody who does. So making sure that the support provided is is adequate to the needs of the person, um, that will definitely make a difference. Um, enabling those who are most vulnerable to receive appropriate support. So uh, staff, as I said, themselves really struggled with, with, for example, people who are very, very ill, both physically and mentally. But ultimately, these places are perceived as unfair because people are being detained uh, when kind of they're basically being held on what they perceive as a prison when actually they haven't committed a criminal offence. So the best solution would be to obviously these places to be closed. Um, but another big part of it is still making sure that the process is fair. Thank you very much for talking to us about your research and, and explaining the system to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. The situation could be about to change here in the UK quite significantly. A new Nationality and Borders Bill is currently making its way through the UK Parliament. It could make the process of acquiring permanent residency a lot more complicated for refugees and migrants. Now, the government says the aim of the new law is to break down people smuggling routes and create a fairer system. But opponents say the government's proposals will instead create a two-tiered refugee system. The UNHCR said it could undermine the 1951 Refugee Convention and that if the bill became law, it could risk the lives and well-being of vulnerable people. Now, debates around these issues are happening just as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has focused renewed attention on the plight of refugees. And that's what we're turning to in our next story. More than 2 million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded on the 24th of February. And many more are trying to find a safe route away from the fighting. The scale of this refugee crisis is unprecedented in Europe since World War II. But even before the Russian invasion, many Ukrainians had been displaced from their homes by fighting in the eastern Donbass region, or by the Russian annexation of Crimea. To find out more about that recent history and Russia's attitudes and rhetoric towards refugees from Ukraine, I called up a sociologist based in the UK. My name is Dr. Irina Kuznetsova. I'm an associate professor at the School of uh, Geography, uh, Areas and Environmental Sciences at the University of Birmingham. I'm a human geographer and I moved to the UK um, in 2014 from Russia. And first of all, I want to express my solidarity with uh, my Ukrainian colleagues and to everyone who have uh, relatives and friends in Ukraine. It's devastating and I'm firmly against this war. Okay. And obviously at the moment, one of the big kind of issues at the moment is that the refugee crisis that's coming out of the war. As someone who studies the forced displacement of people in Ukraine, what's your initial reaction been to what's, what's been happening? So my, my, my first reaction was shock. But also I was thinking about internally displaced people who lost their home once already and then who experienced massive mental health issues as well as a result of it. So now they are going to, to lose their home again, and that's what's happening at the moment. But also, there is over one million people who have been internally displaced in Ukraine right now as well, because not everyone going to leave the country, but uh, they try to, to, to move to, to some cities which how to say, feel a bit safer than others. Can you help explain the, the context here for us? So since the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, how easy has it actually been for Ukrainians to move around the region, to move to and from Russia, and also to 
to the West, to, to European countries? All former Soviet Union space uh, became very, very vibrant and mobile after the collapse of Soviet Union, partly because many countries faced a deep economic crisis. And as a result, the mass immigration happened uh, in Ukraine as well. So the official statistics shows that between 1991, so when Ukraine proclaimed independence, and 2004, over two and a half million uh, people left Ukraine. Most of them, about 1.8 million, uh, to former Soviet Union republics, including Russia, and over 600,000 to the West. So there were barriers to, to move to the West because before uh, 2014, Ukrainians were not able to move freely to to the European Union, to other countries. So, but still considering the uh, strong connections uh, with the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, for instance, or in the United States, and also rising opportunities for people from different sectors like IT and, and, and science to, to immigrate. So many did so. So you said that something changed in 2014. Tell us what happened then. So in 2014, since uh, Russia next Crimea, and then started a backup uh, new regime in non-government controlled territories of Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast. Over one and a half million people fled to other parts of Ukraine, from eastern part of the country, and from Crimea as well. And uh, also it has impacted international migration. So over a million, for example, according to the UN, uh, fled to Russia since 2014. And then if you look to Poland, who now accept lots of refugees from Ukraine. So the number of labor migrants from Ukraine in Poland has doubled since 2014. And on the end of 2021, there were about one and a half million people from Ukraine. Okay, so this moment in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, and then the war began in the east, uh, in the Donbass, that really changed everything. Absolutely, yes. Mm. And this is something you've been studying as part of your research with colleagues in, in Ukraine. Can you tell us about what you've been looking at? Yes, I, I work together with, with my colleague, Professor Oksana Mikheva from the Ukrainian Catholic University. Now she works at the University of Vyadrin in Germany. So unfortunately, she couldn't join today because it's just a very stressful time. So we were looking at everyday experiences of those who were internally displaced in Ukraine. So we did interviews, uh, focus groups, but also we talked with a lot of NGOs and international organizations as well, trying to understand this um, solidarity among people, but also, you know, how people cope, how they survive, what tactics they're using, and then how do they integrate within uh, host communities. And what are these people who've been forcibly displaced been telling you about their experiences? It, it is a hugely traumatic experience. And then when we did research regarding mental health of the general population and those who have been displaced, so the level of anxiety and depression is very high, despite that we conducted research in 2018, you know, after four years of displacement. So the people's wounds so still have not been healed. But also I just wanted to quote one of the IDPs from Luhansk, she was uh, 58 years old when we spoke to her and she lived in Kharkov, so I don't know what's, what, what she's doing uh, at the moment. But she was saying that, I quote her, that we keep everything that we do not use in boxes and then it's easy to move and find another accommodation. So you always with suitcases and always have to think what to do tomorrow. Which plans could you make? Nothing really when you do not have any stability. 
So when you're young, you can live in rented flats, but when you're elderly and touch wood will not get sick, you know, which landlord will would keep you in a flat, it's very frustrating. And also I heard, you know, from some evidence, you know, from some of my friends who know some people who displaced, they're saying that, you know, they've been displaced once, but they, they can't move again. They're just exhausted. You've also been researching the displacement of people from Crimea, which was annexed completely by Russia. Um, why did people decide to leave? Yes, of course, among many displaced people from Crimea were those who were under risk of uh, persecution from Russian authorities, many Crimean Tatars. Also, the people who were strongly against this annexation and strongly against the Russian ideology. As well as people who've been internally displaced within Ukraine, as you said, an estimated one million people went to Russia and you've actually done separate research on them. So tell us a bit about these people and why they went to Russia. So some moved to Russia because there are so many transborder families. Part of family live in Ukraine, part of family live in Russia, and then they just thought that it would be easier for them to move to, to their family. Some people have some jobs in Russia, for instance, and then... Uh, when it happened, they just didn't go back. Uh, some people uh, were so-called evacuated by Russian authorities and provided some, some vehicles to, to leave the territories. And in, in that moment, when they were under risk and had to save their lives, so they didn't think about ideology, which is understandable as well. By the end of 2014, there were 576 centers, which accommodated over 30,000 uh, people from Ukraine. How were these people treated in Russia? How did re Russia react to them moving? P people with whom I, I talked in Russia, you know, who, who fled from Ukraine, most of them felt that they were welcomed and then they really appreciated help which they received because there were lots of uh, volunteers who, who helped uh, with clothes and with, uh, with food as well and also uh, tried to accommodate people even in their homes because even if fresh established over 500 centers to accommodate uh, to accommodate refugees, it was not enough. And people had to rely on help from strangers or from families or friends. But the problem is that uh, it was largely supported, you know, from, from the government. And then as soon as uh, mass media attention uh, decreased, we could see the decrease of uh, finance uh, to support Ukrainian refugees and also uh, people's attention as well. And third sector in Russia is not very developed. And these policies, you know, because they were implemented from the top down without any public control, became in some sense unsustainable. And also for all migrants to Russia, uh, not only for Ukrainians, but for migrants from Central Asia as well, there are massive issues of bureaucracy and corruption. So it's all have made the process of obtaining fully documented status very uh, problematic. And then in 2019, it was a presidential degree uh, adopted, which uh, extended simplified citizenship rule to all residents of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, regions, including territories controlled by the Ukrainian government. And I think that at that point, it was obvious that uh, Russia uses Ukrainian refugees as geopolitical tools as well, because extending this degree to, to people who live in Ukrainian-controlled territories shows that uh, Russia really consider U Ukrainians, like Putin said, like the same people. And uh, as a result, over 720,000 people from non-government-controlled areas of Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts of Ukraine uh, have Russian passports. 
This is since 2019. They immediately were given yes. Russian passports. Yes. Mm. And you said that Russia has been using these refugees for as political tools. Can you talk through a bit about some of the rhetoric around refugees from Ukraine within Russia? And the bidding, the assistance provided to displaced from Ukraine was the idea such assistance with the help to I put quotes here, brotherly people, that Ukraine was almost, like Putin said, the same nation. And that, again, using the quote, ethnic violence and Ukraine was the cause of the conflict. And it has been promoted by, by the Russian media. So this campaign around Ukrainian refugees, it's actually impacted on uh, public opinion and also amplified his view and the Kremlin view on uh, Ukrainians as the same nation. Basically, it's a transborder nationalism. And also Russia has created um, a rhetoric around genocide in Ukraine, which has not been proven in, in any way. Has this played into the rhetoric around uh, refugees as well? Yes, absolutely. So it played uh, in 2014 and uh, the media plays this card now again. So Russia is saying we have to accept these refugees because they're being persecuted in Ukraine. That's right. That's right. And was this something that came across to you when you were talking to some of these people who'd, who'd moved? No, actually. Uh, so in, in none of the 60 interviews, I heard anything like that. So do we know how many people have crossed into Russia now in recent weeks during the, the, the current invasion? Yes, unfortunately, at the moment, many Russian media resources are not uh, available. So they, they're blocked. And what I could see for the situation on the February 21... So more than 60,000 residents of uh, Donbass had arrived in Russia and 40 regions agreed to accept them. And Russia calls these people not refugees, but evacuees. Okay. So it's using similar rhetoric about these people as it has been for the last eight years. That's right. Yes. And is that kind of do you think, playing into the Russian state narrative around the invasion? Yes, absolutely, because it's, it's how media, again, uh, portrayed this uh, so-called evacuation. So they talk about people who lived in basements for eight years, that they're afraid of uh, persecution from the Ukrainian government. Yes, definitely. So they promote, again, the same rhetoric, right, like it was in 2014. So what is the Russian government offering people who've now left Ukraine? So there are uh, different shelters organized for some of the people who have been, again, I'm using language of Russian officials who have been evacuated from those areas. But also Putin promises 10,000 rubles to each displaced person uh, from Ukraine, you know, which is humiliating. It's, it's very low, so you can't even rent a flat for a month for this money. So it used to be approximately $100, but now it will be like 70 or 60 Okay, well... Thank you so much, Irena, for sharing that with us. Thank you. Irena Kuznetsova there at the University of Birmingham. You can read more analysis about the Ukraine war and the refugee crisis on theconversation.com. Finally, here's Martin Turen in Montreal, Canada, with some recommended reading about International Women's Day. Hi, I am Martin Turen from The Conversation in Montreal. For the International Women's Day, we look at the place of women at the highest levels of our organizations. There are still too few, says economist Louise Champoux-Payet from Concordia University in Montreal. 
She wrote several articles on this issue for the conversation, and she has been involved for 40 years in promoting the increased participation of women in the senior ranks of businesses. And it's not happening fast. Only 5% of the largest companies list on the Toronto Stock Exchange are headed by a woman. This situation got worse since the beginning of the pandemic because many women have no choices to put their careers on hold or to work part-time in order to give themselves more flexibility. This has an impact on women's earnings and on the career path they choose. Louis Champoupaillet advocates for proactive policies by governments, regulators and businesses. Another article I suggest to you for this International Women's Day is about love songs, which carry messages of all kinds toward a young female audience. Sylvie Genet from UCAM in Montreal shows the symbolic ways in which these forms of popular culture can communicate negative messages when claiming to be harmless. That's it for me. Goodbye. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to Lauren Martin at the Caldor Centre at the University of New South Wales. And thanks to the conversation Stephen Kahn, Wes Mountain, and to Alice Mason for our social media and to Katie Francis for help with our transcripts. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us on podcast at theconversation.com. And you can also sign up for our free daily email newsletter by clicking on the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or a review where your podcast apps allow you to. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Mao Lissetto. Our theme music is by Nita Sell. And I'm Justin Bergman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>